it's one of those things that I totally meant to look into fixing. And then, um, I guess I saw something shiny in the corner. Um, <laughs> and then you didn't. I had some Cheez-Its in the kitchen. Um, Ooh. Did you yeah, right? Cheez-Its? So tell me another snack that people don't think about, period. But then somebody says, you want some Cheez-Its? And they're like, hell yeah, I want some Cheez-Its. I don't know if I have that visceral of a reaction to Cheez-Its. Well, that's because they're not in front of you right now. Well, no, it's just because I've had them puked on me more than once. So my oh, general reaction right. to Cheez-Its is slightly different than yours. Right. The small bags of disease that live in your house. Yeah, that those are the ones. I think, uh, your, I think your mic's a little bit on the hot side. That's unusual. Something near you being hot? I agree. Better? Yeah. You're, it was just okay. when you were, when you got excited. When you became. Look, man, this is what Cheez-Its does to a person. <laughs> you're just, you're just pumped. <laughs> oh. You tell me, show me somebody that thinks that Cheez-Its is not delicious and I will show you someone who is wrong. I am happy to be wrong. I will carve I mean, to out. There, you are very good at it. Often, like you know, early and often. That's what I go with. If I'm going to be wrong, <laughs> uh, what did my uh, one of the guys I used to work with said? If you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. And that's advice that I've carried with me through my entire career. You know, if you're going to do something, do it. If you're going to, why wouldn't you rather be a black bear? They're much more violent. I don't think it was the violence. I was think it was just the sheer, sheer magnitude. So he really just said like polar bear, right? You because think they're better at like connects? I don't know. I've never gotten close enough to give it a set of connects to play with. They might make that Ferris wheel in like seconds. When was the last time you even tried to play canasta with a polar bear? I rest my case. All right. All right. I was going to say last Friday, but it wasn't a polar bear, technically. <laughs> Dave is more of a half breed. Dude, what He's... did did you learn nothing from Cher? <laughs> I believe in life after love. That's <sighs> <laughs> not what we're talking about. <laughs> oh, I'm not. Was that a Moonstruck reference? Because I can go. Oh, she did a song in the '60s called "Half Breed" about really? being called a half breed because it's oh. not cool. Really, Cher? Yeah. It's actually a pretty good song. I mean, I don't doubt that Cher had a pretty good song, but that she seems did like have that that's... habit. Hmm. She did have that as a habit. Yes. She's like the Cheez-Its of pop music. There it is. We found it. Cher is the Cheez-Its of pop music. Episode title. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Oh, hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I'm a real human person who enjoys the English language and hates the overuse of hyperbole. Tell you nothing makes my circuits blow like ridiculous and unneeded terminology. That metaphorically speaking, of course, I, I have no metal circuits etched into my positronic brain. That would be strange and highly illogical. With me is Chris, who's also here. That might actually be the uh, title of my autobiography. Strange and highly <laughs> illogical. The Chris Hainer story. Oh, I thought it was uh, overuse of hyperbole. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. I feel like that's more of a chapter title. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad that as we 
have each episode of Chaos Labber, as we record each one, you are slowly assembling titles and chapters for your autobiography. I mean, at this point, it's like a series. I think I'm on autobiography number like 70. You know, so there's I been I think I this... should start with like a pamphlet. That's a right. That's a good place to start. You know, when you're like six, your autobiography pamphlet size. As you get older, maybe it becomes more of a novella. And by the end, you've got like the Encyclopedia Britannica or Infinite Jest. One of the My two. mother was right. I didn't try hard as a child. <laughs> well, no reason to start now. No, sir. Not when I can have computers do it for me. Huh? 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 Is that is that somehow germane to our topic today? And our topic is hyper automation. It's a real term. And it's the topic I picked specifically because I thought the title would make Ned mad. You know, I I, I even bolded it. You did? You sure did there. I will now wait the appropriate 17 seconds for Ned's system to overheat, reset, and come back online with a cool, calm demeanor. You know, Ang... English and languages in general are something that we invent and control. So anybody can invent their own term. And if people start to use it, then it is, in fact, an official term. Okay. Well, also, hyper automation sucks and I hate it. I think it's safe to say that we can go ahead and call Ned a hostile witness <laughs> for this one. Yeah, baby. <laughs> but Gartner made it up. So that makes it important to talk about. Oh, God. It's, this is like. Pardon my French. It's like fucking super cloud all over again. But oh, I know. Go ahead. I know. Go this ahead. is what happens when you make me late. Make you wait. I was late. That's what I said. In Kuwait. That's what I meant to say. I'll hydrate. Great. Anyway, <laughs> so we've talked about what AI can do. And that's all fun and games and AI is wrong all the time. Doesn't know how to do hands. I think there's a lot of other jokes we're going to repeat six or seven times. Hyper automation is important because it is the end goal of what this AI thingamajig is talking about. Hmm. That's right, Margaret. AI isn't just about making the look like the Pope is wearing Balenciaga. <laughs> And I didn't even have to practice that word. <laughs> In the mirror no. for hours. Long story short, and believe me, it's going to be a long story. Mm -hmm. Hyper automation is about empowering automation as we consider it to be better, smarter, faster, and more importantly, more pervasive throughout the business as a whole. So again, kind of like share. <laughs> So what's the dictionary definition of hyperautomation? I am sure you're quietly asking yourself. I'm well, fairly certain it's not in the dictionary, but go ahead. I could just tell you, or <laughs> I could bend your ear with a ton of background information first. Three guesses on which way we're going to go with this one. I feel like I only need one. <laughs> so automation. Let's talk about that. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. And oh, by the God. beginning, I don't mean 
ancient mechanical constructions like the Antikythera mechanism, which is awesome. Definitely did not practice in the mirror also. (laughs) And I actually (laughs) didn't say it right. Close enough. (laughs) The thing is awesome and it works and it's an automation of a sort, but it's also 2,500 years old. And um, let's just stick to the past few hundred years, shall we? Good. Okay. So when the, um, how do we call them? The outside kids think about computers as like a historical artifact. They probably think of what? ENIAC? Maybe? Maybe? They probably think of an Apple II. Most likely. But if they think like big computers from when the world was in black and white, they probably just think generic IBM mainframe type thing that fills an entire floor, probably from the 60s. I don't know. Let's play football. Lots of reel-to-reel things starting and stopping. A lot of noise. Yeah. Transistors, probably. Mm -hmm. But the cool kids who never got picked for kickball know better. The generally agreed upon first conceived idea in Western culture of a computer of the kind we're talking about goes all the way back to 1833 and Charles Babbage's difference engine. The concept was ingenious. The machine that would have taken to run it was expensive and as such, sadly, never built in Babbage's lifetime. Mm -hmm. But it would have worked. You know why we know that? Because eventually we built it and it worked. How about that? And what would it have done for us? Math. That's all computers ever do. That's actually quite true. The idea at the time was simple. Humans can do math, obviously. Humans invented math. Sort of. Discovered it. From an eschatological perspective, does anybody really know what time it is? Have you ever looked at your hands? (laughs) How do you turn a phrase? Anyway. The thing about humans doing math is they know what they're doing, but they still have to go slowly and crucially they make mistakes. Mm. Sometimes, apparently, you're supposed to let them sleep. (laughs) Not the way I do it. Have a machine do it, and it will not make mistakes, unless you're a Pentium 2. Even if you feed it a million calculations in a row. Of course, back then, we're basically talking about something that is even more primitive than punched... uh, What are those things called? Cards? Punch cards. So the, uh, you know, a million might take a while, but you get the idea. Even though the first known use of the actual word automation did not get recorded until 1912, the concept is there from the very beginning. Use a machine to do the job previously done by humans. Do it better, do it faster, and don't ever have to take breaks. Fast forward to the 1930s, and our good friend World War II is on the horizon. Yay! One thing that we learned from World War One, which, if people don't know, is the one that came before World War Two. Fun fact was not called World War One at the time. Save it for the history podcast. <laughs> one thing we learned is that bombs and mortars and cannons and rockets and all things that can send explodey stuff far, far away. Super useful in war. But even useful if they actually hit the target. Mm. 
much better to hit, say, the army instead of a cornfield. I mean, the corn might beg to differ, but. <laughs> yeah, unless you're trying to make a whole lot of masa. We learned that because, like I said, efficiency is king. Enter computers. Not the ENIAC yet. The computers I'm speaking of that helped in this instance were actual human beings. Mm-hmm. And what did they compute? Ballistics tables, silly. They did all kinds of very boring math. And these people, human beings, mostly women, would sit for hours a day doing these routine mathematics to build out books and books and books of ballistics tables. Mm -hmm. This saved fighting forces from having to calculate under fire, which apparently is hard. Instead, you pull out the book, you look up down and distance, punch in some weather, a little variable here, dial some things in on the weapon, and no pun intended, boom. Bomb hit target. Mm -hmm. Mass destruction had never been so easy. All right. Yay? Mm-hmm. Anyway, this exercise convinced the world at large that we could do ballistics better. So murder people indiscriminately. I mean, we've always been good at doing that better. But more importantly, there was a way to do math faster and more accurately. In this case, the math was done ahead of time. Problem that we ran into was they kept coming up with new weapons, which meant that the computers had to keep doing this job over and over and over again for even the most minor of revisions to the hardware. Mm -hmm. And thus, and this happened after the war, unfortunately, but time marches on and so do explosions. We finally get to the ENIAC. A lot of the people that pioneered that program moved directly into doing research and working on the grunt work that made ENIAC possible. And the rest, as they say, is history. Wait, I thought this wasn't the history podcast. Yeah, I was going to say, this is starting to sound <laughs> kind of like our other podcasts that we definitely should start. <laughs> we'll do that right after we build the time machine. Are you familiar with the Isaac Asimov short story? where, or it might have been Ray Bradbury. Honestly, sometimes they get the two a little mixed up. But the conceit was there were all these computers that were calculating the trajectory of ballistic missiles in a never-ending war. And then someone had the great idea of putting a human inside of the missile so they could compute the ballistics as the missile was being shot and thus start to win the war. No, that sounds terrifying. I'm going to say that the premise was on pretty thin ice, but I understand what he was getting at with the point. Anyway, I'm pretty sure it's an Asimov story. Check it out if you're interested. So that's the story of how we got to computers. It was always about making mundane work for humans into simple, repeatable, and most importantly, error-free tasks for machines. And what do we have now? We are a wash in a world that is automated around us, whether we think about it or know it or not. The simple definition of an automated task is one that is done on a schedule by a machine so a human doesn't have to do it. Your alarm clock is an automation. And this is a real thing. Did you know that waking people up in the morning used to be a job for humans? I did know that. <laughs> they were called knocker-uppers. And no, it's not what it sounds like. <laughs> well, it is what it sounds like, but it's not. 
<laughs> it's not that. <laughs> I think you have to pay extra for that. <laughs> Basically, even way back when, if you lived in a city and had a job, the expectation was you would be there on time. And usually that meant, you know, the crack of dawn. It wasn't like 6.37 a.m., but still. In 1880, there's not even electricity, I don't, I don't think. Well, there's but, electricity, there but we what? didn't know how to use it. And we were probably all scared of it. Yeah. Unlike what now. there were were people who you could pay to come around every morning at sunrise or whenever and using a long stick, knock on the window until you got up and waved them off. <laughs> yep. One has to assume that you could pay extra for a snooze function. Mm -hmm. You probably also get a broken window. Enter alarm clocks. A simple, inexpensive little automation box makes your life possible and put an entire industry of human workers out of business. It has ever been thus. <laughs> it has, even for the strangest of professions. So moving on, um, if this is a little too twee for some of us, what about uh, cron jobs? Everyone who is a serious technologist grew up using Linux and Unix. You're an asshole. And knows how easy it was to schedule jobs using cron. It was not easy. <laughs> it was easy. <laughs> you want those log files rolled up and sent off site, say, every Wednesday at 2 a.m.? Write the script, tell cron when to kick it off. You'll, you'll never fill that var log partition to 100% before going off on a three-day weekend without your phone and come back to a furious office that's 90 seconds from firing you ever again. Hooray. What? <laughs> Modern automations, especially back office automations, is where it gets harder for a non-practitioner to wrap their minds around the concept. But it really is the same. You take mundane, repeatable work that a person does and create a process or a series of processes that allow a machine to do it. In the process of doing this, no pun intended again, mm. You gather data, or you could gather data, I guess I should say. Then you can try to continuously improve. You glean insights from both the results of your automation process and outside opinions in order to make your automations work better. And that is the difference. That is the definition of hyper-automation, is taking that automation to the next step. I personally think they should have called it Automation 2.0, because that would have been a more descriptive title. but it would have had the downside of not making Ned nearly as mad. Yeah, I think you're actually right in that. Automation 2.0, I would have been like, okay, well, at least it's not Web, web 3. But <laughs> instead, hyper-automation. Right. You know, because so, once you start with superlatives, it's really hard to keep embiggening them, you know? So what's the next one going to be like quantum hyper-automation or quantumation? No, it's going to be super hyper-automation. Jesus, please try to stay on track. Okay, fine. Can you just freaking define hyper-automation for real? Okay, all right. Knowing all that we know now, Webster's Dictionary, and by Webster's I mean the internet, and by the internet I mean Gardner, <laughs> defines hyper-automation as, quote, the use of advanced technologies like artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotic process automation, we'll get back to that one in a second, mm. and natural language processing to automate as many business processes as possible. 
This involves the orchestrated use of multiple automation technologies for end-to-end business process automation, unquote. Is anyone surprised this came from Gartner? Um, like, I want to die a little bit. <laughs> and I think they successfully made a part of me die inside somewhere. It's hard to locate it. But uh, yeah, the mashing together of just all the trends and hype cycles that they've loved over the past like five, 10 years, they've got all the greatest hits in there. AI, ML, RPA, NLP. If they sprinkle a little crypto on here, I think we've got ourselves a taco. NSYNC, they got uh, everything. Yeah. PYT. So why did they do that? Gartner claims that they coined hyperautomation because they believe it is the next step in the evolution of automation and they wanted it to have some structure. Hmm. So by their reckoning, hyperautomation has the potential to revolutionize the way businesses operate by automating more processes more quickly and more accurately than ever before. I'm not sure how we ended up in the 60s, but <laughs> basically this is just more and more of the same thing more complicated, more involved ways where businesses can free up their employees to focus on strategic value-added work and no more knocker-uppers, except for the other kind. <laughs> we do need the other kind occasionally. So what else goes into the 2.0? Um, the goal here is to glean more information from all of an organization's automations, both inputs and outputs, um, and make things better. In the mm. cron example, there is no intelligence, right? Right. It will rotate those logs blindly forever. Mm -hmm. It will not change anything about its approach unless you edit it or the system crashes. It will not call home with suggestions, communicate with the systems it's logging to see if there's a better way or a better time, or if that system even exists anymore. Is it just sending tar balls into the ether? That's right. I said ether. Deal with it. I mean, I'm not going to call you out on that, but I will say the plus side of that is that it's consistent. You know what it's going to do, and it's not going to vary from that behavior over time. Right. And that does come into uh, a problematic thing where you now have something else to keep track of, right? Mm -hmm. Who's watching the Watchmen kind of situation, which I get. And I think it's interesting because this whole thing from an autom automation perspective sounds to me exactly like all of the pros and cons and trials and tribulations of a fully built and finely tuned SOAR system. Hmm. The threat management version of this has been had the sophistication built into it for a while, even before AI became the super fancy word of the day. And you end up in a situation where kind of to your, well, a little bit beyond your point, because your point is lame. What you need is skilled workers who can design, develop, implement, and most importantly, monitor hyperautomation solutions. It's not set it and forget it, just like SOAR. Because if you set it up in a certain way, it will make changes. It will go Skynet on you if you're not careful. So what you're saying is by automating certain functions and processes that were previously done by a person, you're now creating a new job for somebody else to oversee this new automation. Correct. 
and there are areas of automation that we've already done this in. Like SOAR is one thing. Uh, CI/CD pipelines that are X amount automated is another. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have suggestions as well. Not good ones. <laughs> the whole idea here is you get the opportunity to automatically pull in information and make decisions based on that information at machine speed. Mm-hmm. You can continually expand that out to your entire organization, which is the probably impossible limit of 100% automation because then we are in the matrix. But that's the umbrella that hyper automation works under. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I wanted to talk about and highlight the difference between, say, a simple cron job and one of these more advanced automations that goes under the umbrella of hyper automation. Um, falls under the category and the name robotic process automation. Mm-hmm. I can see by the look in your eye that you're seven to 10 seconds from crying. The problem with robotic process automation is that it barely involves robots. And I feel like I'm being cheated. You know, you're not wrong. The very, <laughs> the very first time I heard the term robotic process automation, I thought it had something to do with SCADA systems. And I was so, so upset. There's no machines involved. Yeah, you, like me, love to watch the program, how it's made, right? Possibly the greatest contribution to society that America has ever come up with. I will watch an assembly line for like three to six hours and just be um, constantly amazed by the robots that do amazing things. So when I was introduced to RPA, I was all freaking pumped. And then I find out there's no goddamn robots, Chris. Nope, not even one. Not even one. It's not the robot that's being automated. It's the process that is being robotized. And could you possibly get any lamer than that? <laughs> Look, I didn't name it. <laughs> anyway, perhaps an example is in order. Perhaps. Let's talk about resumes. If we must. So I suspect that the majority of people listening to this podcast have uh, applied for a job. Possibly Ever. very recently. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know from that sad, frustrating, painful experience that the old school version of automating around resumes is kind of crap. What would happen? Well, you would have some kind of a text-based tool that would search for keywords and like numbers, ages, and experience, and either accept or reject completely out of hand, often without even telling you that they did so. Mm-hmm. That was cool. Totally cool. Um, if the resume was accepted by some miracle, what happened? It still went to a recruiter, a human being who still had a lot of manual work to do. Mm -hmm. Grab the resume, read it, hopefully, determine the department it should go to, check the list of reviewers in that department, check their calendars, get them to review, get the reviews back, decide whether or not to take next steps, rinse and repeat. Mm -hmm. Sounds simple and kind of checklisty, right? Like a little bit. It's not quite as simple as reading a script as a telemarketer, but it's not that far off. So that could be automated. Sure. Kinda. You could find a way. Mm -hmm. However, what else does the recruiter do? The recruiter likely knows all the people that are in the system. 
They know their tendencies. They know strengths and weaknesses and will modify behavior based on what they think is the best way to go forward. Now, this is still what is referred to in RPA uh, uh, wording as a swivel chair job. You're taking an input A, you're either putting it in basket B, C, or D. Okay. But the point is, the recruiter is making decisions and is modifying not just based on, well, this looks like a B, it goes into B, but on additional information that that recruiter has gathered over time. That is where hyperautomation comes in because the idea is also to gather that information and allow an automated system, let's say uh, the recruiter bot 2.0, to make those kinds of subjective as well as objective decisions. And then more crucially, observe how they react and how the re uh, results come back and adjust the behavior accordingly. Super. Basically, it's a feedback loop. Yeah. Just like AI is basically a Markov chain. So we really could have like summarized this whole section into automation should include a feedback loop. <sighs> I see it's been a while <laughs> since you've gone to a Gartner conference. <laughs> Economy of words is not a thing that any Gartner analyst has ever been accused of. That's for Might actually be a penalty now that I think about it. <laughs> I'm not saying they get paid by the word, but it sure seems like it. But anyway, that's hyper automation. The only thing I want to bring up about that particular example of hyper automation and resumes is you're probably going to rely on some sort of training set, some data set for training, which introduces the potential for bias in the data set. And if you go back to that Tome of Tomes Freakonomics, where they did a study of applying for the same job using um, basically white dude names versus not white dude names, and finding that the same exact resume um, with the white dude name got better uh, return or better, better feedback, that sort of thing can easily be codified into a RPA or hyper automation or machine learning model, whatever you want to call it, if you're not careful to control for those biases. Right. And that's a huge if. Right. So and my that, is, that that if is one that's going to follow us around for the foreseeable future when it comes to anything automated or AI based. Right. It's like automating at scale is great and you have to automate when you're working at scale but it also means that you can automate disaster at scale so we just i i feel like my my only point here is like we got to be a little more mindful about the thing that's making decisions and you probably still need a human somewhere in that chain right for now so yeah in conclusion the whole thing is both intriguing and terrifying Who's up for ice cream? Hmm. Two scoops, please. <laughs> Lightning round? Lightning round. Lotus eaters continue to bask in the glory of Domino. If I say Lotus, you might think of a car or a flower. If I say Domino, you might think of sugar or a series of tiles collapsing. Or a what? pizza. Or a pizza. Why not? 
What you almost certainly did not think of was productivity software. However, there was a time before Microsoft Office and Exchange, I know, when dinosaurs rule, roamed the earth, schools were located uphill in both directions, and IBM ruled the productivity roost with software developed by an acquired company, Lotus Software. Most famous is their product, Lotus 123, which was the Excel of its time, which was eventually supplanted by the actual Excel. Slightly less famous, but much longer lived, was the messaging platform composed of the Lotus Notes client and the Lotus Domino server. Despite Microsoft's best attempts to embrace, extend, and extinguish with Outlook and Exchange, Domino and Notes have tenaciously hung in there. Even after IBM sold the software off to an Indian company called HCL in 2017. Last week, HCL announced the forthcoming version 14 of Domino, bringing welcome additions of a new admin portal and a Java virtual machine upgrade, as well as more flexible licensing of additional features. So congratulations to Notes for being nigh unkillable, despite the best efforts and billions of dollars from Microsoft. Barracuda announces the worst security breach of the year so far your move cisco now this is not something you see every day a vendor flat out telling you to rip their hardware out of your network immediately mm. to quoteth the barracudith barracuda's remediation recommendation at this time is a full replacement of the impacted esg wow wow barracuda networks is is, is email security gateway appliance, as in hardware, is the victim here. The victim of a remote command injection vulnerability that affects all modern versions, which is 5.1 to current, which is like seven years from in the past <laughs> until now, and cannot be fixed. This was originally documented at the end of May and given a CVS score of 9.8, which seems preposterous given what we know now. Chillingly, the report from Barracuda themselves states that the earliest evidence of exploit goes back to October 2022 and that data exfiltration is confirmed to have happened to at least some customers. Barracuda did preemptively notify all customers they believed to have been affected, but now they're going public and basically saying, yeah, we're going to need you to go ahead and stop using our product like now. Wow. Fake cryptocurrency scam sites pervade the web. Crypto scam sites, but I repeat myself, could really be classified as basically any site that offers to sell you crypto. But in this case, we're talking about a specific grouping of sites meant to uh, sucker you into a bogus rewards scheme. Trend Micro has spotted more than 1,000 websites under different domains that are all running the same basic scam and the same basic software. It starts with a message claiming you have won a fractional amount of Bitcoin on some investing site, usually to the tune of $25,000, thereabouts. The link takes the victim to a legitimate-looking website in terms of HTTPS and trust ratings and prompts them to deposit a smaller amount 
usually in the order of hundreds of dollars, to confirm account ownership before the transfer can take place. You know, they're just trying to be prudent. Predictably, the transfer never occurs, and the victim is out a few hundred dollars. Based on research by pub a public Telegram channel, the actors behind the scam have cleared a little over $5 million in the last four months. That's depressing. Even worse, this is an affiliate scam program run by Russian hacking group Impulse, making the process of establishing such a scam as simple as signing up for an account. So... As a quick reminder, if you get a link claiming that you've just won something, the only thing you've won is less money in your bank account. Time-wasting website of the moment Reddit seems content to orchestrate its own destruction. Foot gun, foot gun, foot gun. Y'all have at least heard of Reddit, right? It's like the 4chan of the internet that you're able to talk about in public without ending up on a list. People of a certain age know you. well that Reddit was preceded in this role by Dig, a website that was pretty cool when it was underground, but then got taken over by morons who insisted on trying to profit off it to an extreme degree and then ruined it. Hmm. Well, Reddit appears to be doing... Hang on a second here. Let me find it in my note. Oh. The exact same thing. Reddit CEO Steve Huffman, who goes by the username Spez on Reddit's website, is widely disliked and has been basically since he took over. He's also widely distrusted as he's been proven to go in with admin powers and change comments made by other people. You're not supposed to do that. Mm. Now... He's suddenly trying to charge extortionate prices for access to Reddit's API and has given third-party toolmakers a whopping 30 days to pay or be cut off. Hmm. These third-party tools, and there are many, include Apollo, Sync, and Riff, among, again, many others, and they cannot possibly afford the approximately $20 million per year that Spez is demanding. Why would he be doing this? Surely it's not because he's nakedly positioning the company for an IPO and just a week ago, Fidelity cut Reddit's valuation by 41%. Surely not that. Hmm, surely. Currently, Reddit does have one advantage in that there is no obvious successor for people to flock to. But if you read Reddit, Reddit users are ready to flock. So I guess what I'm saying is, get your shit together fast, Lemmy. EU is leading the way with legislation again. This time, it's around the looming AI apocalypse. Or at least, crisis? We can call it a crisis. Despite what tech bros like Mark Andreessen claim, the coming infusion of AI into all aspects of our life will not be a shining city on a hill or a techno-utopia. There's other topias, as we know. All regulation is not necessarily bad regulation, and there are legitimate concerns about how AI is implemented across all walks of life. 
The Parliament of the EU is currently debating legislation that would put the onus on the companies creating AI-powered software to take a risk-based approach with potential fines of 40 million euros or 7% of total worldwide turnover. What is a risk-based approach? The EU will categorize certain applications as high risk in terms of health and safety. Applications that fall under the high-risk category will have to comply with mandatory requirements before they can be offered in the EU market. Also, non-high-risk applications will still need to assess their data sets for bias and content. This is very different than the approach called an outcome-based approach that is used by the UK and the US. One that, predictably, gives the application writers more latitude and less oversight. So, um, really par for the course. Seems like that's worked out great for crypto and DeFi, and I'm sure AI will be more of the same. All right, stick with me on this one, yeah? I'll try. Stack Overflow, volunteer moderators, down tools over secret new policy that obstructs removal of AI-generated content. Help. <laughs> now, I normally don't just copy and paste the headline from the article I'm linking to, but in this case, I felt compelled to. Down tools is an English phrase, as in UK, that means go on strike. Huh. Get it? Put your tools down? Yeah, no, I, I, I got it. So with that in mind, the headline I just read doesn't sound crazy. Mm. So anyway, you learned something today. I did. In the war against AI-generated content, Wade's people working for free for one of the sites whose content was prime pickings for the training of AI. Stack Overflow. That sentence might have actually been crazier. <laughs> it, was, it was convoluted. <laughs> Stack Overflow is used by many a developer who wants to pretend to know what they're doing and has such instituted a curious instruction to its moderators. Do not remove AI-generated content, quote, outside of exceedingly narrow circumstances, unquote, they said to said moderators. Mm. There's a part of this where the company is concerned that AI detectors are not reliable and that content might not be truly AI-generated, which, fair. Fair. There's another part where the moderators who are striking are saying there's more to the policy that they're not allowed to publicly share, which, mysterious. I personally assume that the company is all too happy to allow AI bots to post because it will increase their magical engagement numbers. This is the same reason that Twitter is completely fine with bots, even though we all know in reality that Twitter is 80% bots. That's not an exaggeration. Twitter is concerned with shitposting. Stack Overflow, on the other hand, is allegedly concerned with correct answers. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, AI at this point in time can't be trusted for that no matter how much engagement it offers. But won't someone please think of the ads? Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now, idly reflect on the meaninglessness of life as you stare into the void that is your ever-present future. There's a sentence for you. 
or go play some Pinochle. You know, whatever. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80, respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever. That's the kind of thing you're into. Honestly, both of us are not doing much on Twitter these days. Maybe find us on LinkedIn. I don't know. Show notes are available at chaoslever.com, as is the sign up for our newsletter. If you like reading things, which you shouldn't, unless you're an AI and we're increasing engagement, we'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. You know, I ran out. seriously overwrought sentences. Uh, you know, we do our best. I'm I'm overwrought at the fact that my beer glass is empty, and that seems problematic. You're overwrought and under lubricated. Ooh. Oh. oh, honey, get the mineral oil. <laughs>